Eve, and I don't have an entirely traditional Thanksgiving sermon today, simply meaning like I'm not going to talk about how to cook a turkey, although I love doing that. We can discuss it afterwards. But I, I want to talk about something that is very important about uh, thankfulness. And you might be wondering how we're going to connect thankfulness, if you read the Facebook announcements anyways, how we're going to connect thankfulness and peace in our heart to the mission of Jesus Christ, to sort of sharing Christ with people through our word and deed. And I hope to make a very strong case for you through John 20. This is a passage I taught on two years ago, but I wanted to reteach it in a much more detailed fashion. We're going to spend like three weeks in this text looking at some of these important things that have happened right after Jesus's uh, death and resurrection and right before Jesus sends his disciples out to essentially share what he has just done with the world. And so today we're going to spend a, a good amount of time talking about the deep connection between knowing Christ's peace like what it means to believe what we talked about last week and the week prior, that Jesus has died for our sins. He has redeemed us. And for those of us that put our faith in him, he has reconciled us to the Father, God the Father Almighty. And that, that peace is astounding when you think about it. God made peace with mankind through Jesus because of the failures of the garden. But deeply connected to that is not, is not just something that happened in the past. It's also this immediate reality of the, the presence of our life or the present in our life. That peace is not just something we long for one day in heaven. Peace is actually something that Jesus promises us from the very day that we, we receive him. And this passage about the disciples really shows us that. And so we'll begin today by kicking around the idea of peace. If you've ever asked somebody the question, and it's very likely if you've been on this earth long enough, you have asked yourself this question, what will bring you peace in this life? You will likely get some interesting answers. There are a lot of answers. We could literally spend the whole morning here listing the things that people say, but I want to share with you some of the more common ones, some of the ones that you are likely to hear if you ask somebody this question, and it's very likely that some of these are answers you might even declare in your own heart. What causes peace in our heart, or what do we believe will bring us peace? Here are a few of them. In a culture obsessed with busyness, many of us would say, hey, I just wish I had more time. If there were just 26 hours in the day, I'd, I'd be better. That's not true. You just would wish there were 29 hours in the day if God gave you 26. That's what busyness does, right? Some of us will say, you know, I just don't know where I'm going in life. If I had peace, I'd have peace if I had a purpose. Like if I knew my role on this earth, I could definitely have more peace in my heart. For a great many of us, we would say we want to be loved. We want to be cared for by the people that matter in our lives. And some of us might even go a little further than that. We might say we, we want to find love. Like we, we want to find a spouse or we, we want more meaningful love relationships in our life. The great neutralizer, the one that everybody tends to talk about is, hey, if I just had more money, I'd, be, uh, I'd have more peace in my life. And I don't know that that's exactly true. We've been talking in my community group about money over these past weeks and how it's the root of all evil. It's not evil in and of itself. But if you look at the lottery, ironically, like the people that win it usually have less peace in their lives. So it's a great example of how some of these things we think will benefit us maybe might not if we had them. Others of us might say, hey, I'd like to be accepted by people. Uh, I'd like to be more successful in my career. Hey, I really just want to be a better person in this area of my life. Uh, I'd like to have healthier relationships with my friends, or I really would like to reconnect with my children. Hey, if I just had a better job. Hey, if I was just healthy. Hey, fill in the blank. The list goes on in a very long and similar way. And what's interesting about peace, especially if you think about some of these particular areas we're talking about here, is all of these things represent the deeper human need of wanting stability, please hear me when I say this, of wanting stability in the most critical circumstantial areas of our life. Everything that I just mentioned sort of implies that if a certain circumstance in our life would just change in another direction or move in another direction, that would bring us peace. 
All of these answers show us that what people often look to with the hope that it will bring them peace and stability is often as diverse as the people themselves. A lot of things affect that. If we maybe had a rough upbringing, maybe we didn't have deep relationships with our parents, we will long to see that fixed or fulfilled in, in, in meaningful relationships. No matter what it is, the bottom line is we tend to believe if some of these things will change, our hearts will find a rest and deeper level of peace. And I want to sort of say at the outset here that to a certain degree, some of these things can offer us peace. Just peace with a lowercase p. Look at some of the examples we just talked about. If you had a ton of money, it's fair to say you'd have a better chance of finding peace in all things financial, right? But the reality of that is that's not guaranteed or permanent. Uh, fluctuating bank accounts every year and the nature of the stock market teach us this lesson year after year. It's not bad to be wise with money. It's just really bad if you create a false hope or a God out of money because that fluctuates. There's never, it never stays the same, good or bad. And this is still just one area of your life. If you had all the money in the world, it doesn't guarantee peace and stability in other areas of life, like your health or your relationships. The same is true with success. Some of the most accomplished people often talk about how lonely it can be at the top. I've heard really successful CEOs say things like, be mindful of the ladder you climb, because once you get to the top of it, you're, you're stuck up there for the most part. So you can actually acquire some of these things and still lack peace. And while work is a major part of our lives, without question, and often does bring us some form of peace, it can also make us incredibly restless. The stats today tell us that, especially in America, in our country, we are in this interesting cycle where people change jobs more than ever. Like, it used to be that a lot of people, not everybody, but they stayed at a job pretty much their whole life. Now the turnover rate is incredible of people migrating into new careers or just different, different sort of companies or entities within a specific career. More than ever, this is the reality. There is restlessness even in the fulfillment of work. Health, as we all know, can be a fickle thing. Even with the best of plans, it too can come and go in our lives. And the reality of health is that the Bible tells us one day it will go. One day our physical bodies will fail. That's just the reality of it. That's why an idea of eternity with Jesus is, is so important. It actually addresses the problem of death too. And so what I'm trying to point out here is there really is nothing we can turn to under heaven that will give us a complete and perfect peace, capital P peace, in this life. And this is exactly what Jesus' words are trying to address when it comes to the first century disciples. He's speaking to them about this particular area. He is reminding them in a general way, and they are, they're going through a circumstance, a, a big one right now. He's reminding them that peace on this earth is often in short supply, and life can be challenging at times. You can be sort of sailing a tranquil sea one day, and then the next day, life turns around and offers you a raging storm. And because of this reality, Jesus makes his, his disciples and us a really gracious promise. It's one that teaches us that if we are a people who love Jesus, we can have peace in our lives no matter what is going on in our lives. The interesting thing about peace, and I try to say this anytime I talk about it, is that as people, we often think if our external circumstances would change, we'd have peace. But the truth is that Jesus desires our internal bearings to change so that we can have peace in any circumstance. At that point, you own the circumstance. The circumstance does not own you. And this is something to be very thankful for. It means whatever your holiday week looks like or the next six weeks, if there are good or bad, if there's somebody in your life who longs to get through these weeks because they love them or tries to stay away from them because it evokes a ton of bad memories, whatever that is, there is this amazing promise Christ give up, gives us that no matter what is going on in our lives, we can actually have peace in him. This is an interesting passage too. And I think even more relevant in here, not just the promise of peace, 
is that this truth is given to the, this promise is given to the disciples in the very same breath that Jesus commands them to get on his mission. To go into the world and share this same peace in the very same way Jesus did with them. He had done this with them for years while he walked with them. He had done it and proved it through the cross. And he was doing it again, sort of reminding them of the importance of this peace that they have been given. Not just being something they lock up in their hearts and forget about. It being the kind of thing that they so care for and have had such a deep experience with that they want to share it with other people. And so last week, I taught on what Jesus' mission is. That is online. I won't get into the details of that today, but I would encourage you to listen to that if you were not here. It is, these are standalone messages without question, but that's a foundational teaching, and I feel that you will benefit from this more deeply if you listen to that. And what we said last week, briefly, is that mission is the act of God breaking into humanity and relentlessly pursuing people who are far from him. Every narrative in the Bible sort of begins there, even though the details might change. The reality is, is God is pursuing a broken and a fallen people. Often at times when we are still running from him, he is relentlessly pursuing us at the times of our lives when we want nothing to do with him because he is a good and a kind and a gracious God. And so a very simple way for us to understand mission, especially as we proceed this morning, is for us to recognize that God desires us to be a people who are humble yet confident in sharing Christ with people through our words and deeds. The simplest definition I can give you of mission is that we so deeply understand who Jesus is in our lives that we want to love and care for and bless people through words and deeds in the same way that Jesus has blessed us. And the irony of this, this is the last thing I'll say about last week, the irony of this is we, we really at length spoke about how we live in a share-happy culture. We're in the world of social media, where everybody shares everything, some stuff you don't even want to see or hear about, just about every moment of the day. You know, you could spend, there is no exaggeration in this, you can literally go to Facebook and scroll down about what people are sharing about their lives for the, every minute for the rest of your life. That thing will never, ever, ever end, and it will probably make your body and mind a poor, poorer for doing so, right? Everybody shares everything. Yet we have this interesting conundrum right now in modern in American Christianity where people are perhaps more timid than ever to share their faith. There's something interesting about that. We'll share everything that matters to us, but are very concerned about what would happen if we, if we share faith. And that is because of fear. And we're going to talk about that this morning, the problems of fear. When God raises those opportunities, we want to be able to seize them. Now, in a room this size, there's likely a healthy dose of confidence, a little apprehension, and maybe even some outright fear. Maybe even some, I say, benevolent ignorance in a very positive way, simply meaning like maybe you're saying, oh, I'd love to do that, I don't know how to do that, or I've never done that. Uh, there is a, a rhythm the Bible gives us about pursuing people like Jesus has pursued us. Before we get to that, not today, it's important that we understand the impediments that will keep us from even embracing the rhythm. And I say, or I provide these sort of places we might be, sort of confidently saying that we, some of us are definitely in these places because this is literally the situation Jesus was speaking into with his disciples just after his crucifixion and resurrection in John 20. Fear, their fear is, is in front of them and what they do with what Jesus has told them to do really dictates whether or not they will follow Jesus for the rest of their days or cower before a world that, that at this point wants to hurt them and really not follow Jesus in the ways he's commanded them. And some of this fear is okay. It's because this command Jesus gives them, and gives us really, to share his grace with our neighbors is a big task. I said last week that the Bible teaches us we can't accomplish this on our own, nor are we meant to. Thankfully, God gives us these great gifts. We have the presence of his son Jesus. We have the power of his Holy Spirit. We have his peace and we have each other. And so one of the problems with maybe being a person who shares faith who shares the peace we so give thanks to God for today, is when we are disconnected from 
the power and the authority of how we can actually do this in a more peaceable way. Maybe we've locked ourselves up in our own head or hearts and we've not let objectivity influence our lives. The words of God, the truth of scripture, the encouragement of other men and women who love God. There is a support structure God gives us to be on mission. And the bottom line here is we are not meant to undertake God's mission alone, nor should we. And when you believe the gospel and are rooted in a meaningful church community, when you have truth in your heart and men and women who love you in Christ, what happens is you have the full force of God's Godhead and the people of God behind you. And that is more likely to see you move to mission as opposed to being fearful of getting on it. And so my genuine hope today is that this week we would take some time to be thankful. You know, I encourage you to do this every year, to meditate on the things that matter to you, to be thankful for what you have, how God has provided for you, whatever that looks like. But I don't want us to disconnect thankfulness from this reality of Jesus dying for our sins and providing us this amazing peace. It's something to be deeply thankful for. And it's something that we should be equally compelled to share. And this leads me to the only we believe truth I want to share with you this morning. I sort of alluded to it five different times. I'll just say it pretty directly now. We believe when a person truly experiences Jesus' peace, they will be compelled to share it. That's what Jesus tells us here. And Paul will echo this in a few moments. We'll look at a verse in 2 Corinthians. I'll reread briefly the reiteration of what Jesus has already said. We didn't read all the stuff before this because we read it last week. And Jesus literally says again, which is why John says, again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. This is some deep stuff right here. All of the things that we sort of value today in modern Christianity, we value the fact that God has given us the presence of his Holy Spirit. We value the fact that we're on the other side of the cross, where peace reigns for those who who look to God and Jesus. A lot of these things are happening for the first time in God's followers in the first century world. These are new truths to them. And in verse 22, Jesus fulfills this long-awaited gospel promise of giving his followers the peace of his Holy Spirit. And this is an incredibly important promise for us because we all know we were created to live with peace in our hearts. I just said that a moment ago. That's the, the premise of this whole teaching. If you've ever been without peace in your heart, if you've ever had days defined by stress, depression, or anxiety, you know, you sort of fill in the adjective there, then you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's a terrible way to live. In our hearts, we know we shouldn't live like that, but the reality of living in a fallen world says at times we might live like that, and for some of us, we definitely will live like that. There will be times when circumstances overwhelm us, and this is why when we find ourselves without peace, we often devote great amounts of energy to finding it again. Out of desperation, we might even turn to things that are not Jesus, like stuff, Stuff like substances, or maybe money, relationships, that long list of things I just mentioned at the beginning of my introduction. The usual suspects. We, we look to these things hoping they will restore peace to our hearts only to find out that they cannot fully deliver. And in some cases, they might rob us even further of the peace that we thought they would promise us. For example, just going back to the first thing I said, if your hope is in money, when there is none, you'll have a lot less hope in money. You'll, you'll be like at a negative balance there, right? So according to Jesus... Having peace in your heart is essential to living a meaningful life. He gives him, or gives the disciples his peace. We can, we can apply very strongly here that this is something he not only gives us, but says that we need. And the disciples learn this truth firsthand. In verse 19, John tells us, is an interesting posture right now. John tells us that the disciples are cowering behind locked doors, worried that the people who just killed Jesus are going to kill them too. In other words, they have the risen Jesus standing before them and they are fearful of the world. Crazy. And what their fear really shows us is a deep irony about most fear, most anxieties. 
And most of the fears that tend to paralyze us the worst in the most important areas of our life, most of the fears that breed anxiety in our lives tend to be rooted in, in irrational reality. And I say irrational reality because I'm not saying this stuff can't happen. What I am saying is that we get to this place where we think it's gonna happen. It's when we take something that could possibly happen in our lives and deceive ourselves into thinking that it will happen to us so much that we put our mind and our heart into a sort of emotional overdrive. And that is pretty much the root of all anxiety and fear. And what's most interesting about this situation with the disciples is you would really think that by now, right after seeing the power of Jesus' resurrection, they would be less worried about the people who are attempting to take their life because they belong to the one who is in control of all life. I mean, the sort of theological equation goes like this. Jesus just came back from the dead. He has fulfilled every promise he has ever made to them. And they are hiding in a room, worried about what is going to happen to them, right? I mean, we can say this today, air-conditioned movie theater. I'm wearing a sport coat today because it's Thanksgiving, right? We can look at this and say, that's crazy. But this was not crazy for them. This was a real thing for them. And what's ironic is Jesus is right there. And they cannot think this way because their fear robs them of their spiritual sanity. And eventually, Christ promised peace. And so they literally find themselves where many of us often find ourselves when we think about the things that could happen to us if we were to publicly follow Jesus. We think about things like this. Well, I'm, I'm fearful that I might be rejected or, or ridiculed. Uh, in this case, they were legitimately fearing for their lives. We wonder what people will say to us. All of these things are legitimate concerns, but they become irrational fears when we sort of begin to answer those questions before we've actually begun living into them or pressing into them. And this is all happening while the risen Jesus stands right in front of them. And so this sort of irrational fear has been, and without doubt continues to be, one of the main things keeping people from genuinely and peaceably finding Christ's peace, obviously. But I would also say moving beyond just having a personal faith with Christ to being humble and confident enough to share your faith when God provides an opportunity. There is a balance between personal and public faith. There has to be. Our personal faith is meant to be lived in the public arena. And I mean that with a ton of diplomacy, tact, and grace. If you've been here long enough, you know that we are talking about respecting the world we live in deeply and the people of it. But at the end of the day, our private faith has to shape our, our public lives. And so over the past years, there's been, uh, there's been what appears to be an increasingly sort of timid posture that some of us have when we think about what it means to be on Jesus' mission in a world we believe is increasingly hostile to Christianity. I actually think this is the root of the problem is we hear a lot of stuff on the news and you have all these entities reporting where Christianity is in America and globally and we don't actually ever hear good stories or celebrated stories. We don't hear about the places God is working deeply in our neighborhoods and the nations. He's working everywhere. And so for some of us what happens is that leads us to rationalize in our minds why we can't and eventually shouldn't share our faith with others through our words and our deeds. I have a couple of quotes I want to share with you this morning. The first comes from a, a gentleman named Trevin, Wa uh, Trevin Wax, prominent pastor, teacher, and blogger. And he writes about fear and mission in our current cultural climate. Listen to what he says about this. It'll be behind me. He says, we don't make great decisions as leaders. And I put in brackets here, people, because that's who he's addressing here. This is not limited to leaders. It's, it's really, uh, it applies to anybody who is trying to follow Jesus. We don't make great decisions as leaders or people when we are motivated by fear. Fear clouds our judgment and distorts our view of reality. To say Christians in North America should be scared is painting too gloomy an assessment of where we are as a culture. Christianity Today did an, actually an article on this a couple of months back where they talked about 
the perception that Christians have of themselves, some of them, is actually more negative than the actual world they live in. So we can see some folks have already painted a doomsday picture when it comes to faith. A lot of Christians, he goes on, goes on to say, feel unsettled right now and lack the confidence to be faithful in this moment. That feeling of being overwhelmed is fine. It's legitimate. That's what the disciples teach us. But we need to respond by getting our gospel bearings. And what he means by that is we have to go back to Jesus' truth. You don't get mission without Jesus' truth. When the earth is shaking and you're not quite sure what faithfulness looks like, that's when you go back to the essentials. That's when you focus on the gospel. We also need some perspective. Hold on to that word because we're going to look at that in a minute. What's going on in 21st century North America is not unique. This is not the first generation to deal with problems like this. And we're not the only people in the world or in church history to deal with challenges to the Christian faith. That's an article from C.T. Pastors, April 2018. Well worth reading the whole thing if you have some time. Here's what I want to point out about it today. An ancient teaching like John 20 and a modern article like the one we just read really shows us that a fearful, fearful heart is not a new thing. It's actually an incredibly old thing. It's a problem rooted in our perspective about how we see the circumstances of life and the power of Jesus. It's a matter of perspective. That's really what this is about. And the disciples cannot strike this balance right now because they're more focused on Jesus' death than they are the power of his resurrection. Or in the case of modern Christianity, if we spend more time speculating about how people will respond to us if we share Christ through our words and deeds, we will likely create a fear-based narrative much worse than what would actually happen if we literally did share Jesus with those people through our words and deeds. We can write a story that actually doesn't exist. That's the reality of this, as opposed to letting God write a story when we're faithful to him, when it comes to mission particularly. And so the bottom line here is we need a different perspective, one that comes directly from God. And Jesus knows this. This is the beauty of Jesus. He's fully aware of this. And he knows that we won't always be able to strike a peace balance in our lives in this area. At the very outset of Christian mission, Jesus lays out the rules of engagement here by providing them his Holy Spirit and his peace to get on the mission. And he does this, he does this very, very profound thing in this passage. He offers us his peace. In order to help the disciples overcome their fear, Jesus gives them his peace, his shalom. And I've used this word in meetings like this before. Because shalom signifies something far more deep than just peace. And so it's important to point out, when we say the word peace in our culture, that word is a word like love, meaning it's got a lot of applications depending on what you're talking about. You know, Peace can take place between two people. It can take place between two nations in a war or a conflict. You know, the word peace is sort of like a hippie statement. For those of you that grew up in the 60s, you should have heard our band earlier. Two people were trying to fight to play 60s music. They were like jamming out. It was really awesome to hear. But they come from the peace generation. They know what I'm talking about. This is a graffiti sign around the world, right? I mean, it's a greeting for some people. I actually say it regularly. Um, when I say goodbye to people, I'll say peace. And I mean it, I guess, more in the shalom sense. And so what I'm trying to point out here is these are all good ideas about peace. Peace in general is a really good thing. But the concept of biblical peace or shalom is something far deeper than these cultural expressions. And I want to share with you a quote I gave to you a couple of years ago. It's, I think, the best quote explaining what God's peace is and what it accomplishes. It's from a gentleman named Cornelius Plantinga, a very important, famed Christian philosopher who wrote about this subject in detail. And he says, God's shalom or God's peace, okay, it's much different than the, the colloquial ways that we use it in our culture today. God's shalom is the webbing together of God humans, and all creation and justice, fulfillment and delight. In other words, everything is at peace. This is God's desire, and one day will be the reality. It's a rich taste of affairs in which all natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts are fruitfully employed. 
It's a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior, Jesus, opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. We have an inborn sense of shalom. It is home, and we long to return to it. The reason I repeat this is because this statement sort of changed my life in many ways. Because it really proves the reality of the human condition. This inborn sense of peace we just spoke about, that all people have, this is not just coincidence. It's not just a common way we feel. It's actually a very deep mark that shows that all people have been created in God's image. We have been hardwired to live in eternal peace and by the promises of God. This peace we all lost when God was transgressed way back in Genesis. And it is to this sense of shalom that Plantinga says we, we long to return to. That is the peace Jesus offers his disciples here. God knows we long to return to this. And this is why he continually provides time and time again to give it to us. It's why the whole story is God relentlessly, the story of the Bible is God relentlessly pursuing us. He is offering us this olive branch again. He is trying to bring us back into his fold. And he's trying to set us apart to be on his mission too. This is really where I want to drive home as an equally important application point, not just about receiving peace and living in it and experiencing it, but being compelled to share it. This type of peace we're talking about today is a peace that's experienced by us in part. There is no perfect peace on this earth right now. There is no you know, final fulfillment or webbing together of all things. That day will come. We'll just have to wait for Jesus' return for it in its entirety. But until then, the Bible's pretty clear that we should be weaving the web. That's part of our job on earth. So think of God's peace in your life like this. This is the best example I can give to you of this. It's this idea of broken glass. It, I actually saw this happen this week in my living room slash kitchen. My daughter, who's eight, was trying to clean our kitchen table with some spray stuff. And she was standing on a, kitchen on a, a dining room chair. There's a, sort of like a chandelier thing over my uh, kitchen table because we live in a very fancy mansion with gold inlays and stuff. And uh, very, very fancy. I'll give you a tour one day, the Orzo residence. Right, right above this table is this like little white chandelier we have with these little like, you know, flame looking bulbs. And she was spraying the table and in a fluke-like accident when she sprayed, some of the mist hit the bowl and the bulb exploded. I, I wasn't even in the kitchen living room when it happened. I was on the other side of the house, but I heard this like loud pop and I went out there and that thing exploded like a grenade. And my theory is, is I guess that bulb was so hot when that cold liquid hit it, it just, you know, popped off like that. There's my Bill Nye Science Guy teaching for you today. And so I, I looked around and there was glass everywhere. I mean, I think we got most of the glass, but I'm pretty confident there was such minute shards that there is still glass somewhere in, in that living room slash kitchen. And when I step on it in a week, I'll make sure to give you another illustration about it. But we, tr we tried our best, right? And, uh, and we, I talked to my daughter about it because at first I was a little angry because it was very dangerous. And then when I realized it was an accident like that, we tried to work through how it happened. And then we tried to clean it up. And the interesting thing about a, a broken bulb, right? If you've ever seen a broken bulb, like it's, it's not, you cannot repair that thing. Like even if you wanted to repair that thing, there's pieces of glass that just don't even exist anymore, right? They, it breaks beyond, beyond repair, and what's interesting about brokenness in humanity is I think on our worst days, on our darkest days, on the days when maybe a spirit of thankfulness doesn't drive our hearts, but maybe, maybe cynicism or jadedness or pity does, what happens is when, when we live without peace in our hearts, we can often see life like a, a shattered bulb that is not repairable. We can see God's mission like that. We can even see our world like that. Broken pain beyond repair. 
However, when you have breathed in Jesus' redemptive peace, you know he has this unique ability to mend the glass. He actually can fix the bulb and knows the places of the bulb that need to be fixed that we can't even find or see anymore. The beautiful thing about this type of peace is it is another example of God's promise to bring healing and wholeness to our hearts in a way that once seemed impossible. And for many of us who have truly experienced grace, we have stories of the impossible becoming possible in our lives. He makes this shattered glass of our hearts whole again. And this is the peace that restores men and women to God on the cross. The truth is, is even in our, with our understanding of sin and redemption, I don't think we fully understand all the broken glass. We understand a lot of it, but the pains God went to to bring us back to him, I don't think we're ever going to fully know that reality until we're in heaven with him one day. It was deep and it was rich, but he dealt with things we're probably not even aware of needed to be dealt with. This is that type of peace that God deals with us. He offers us. It's this peace that brings joy to fearful and broken hearts. It's this peace that brings joy to his disciples. And it is this peace that renews men and women to God. It is this peace that should be driving our hearts and fueling our mission. Here's how we start to wrap up. In other words, we cannot just amen God's peace in our lives without desiring to share it with other people. Because according to Jesus, when we truly experience peace like this, when the bulb is mended, we should be compelled to share it with others. Not obliged, not determined, literally compelled is the idea that is behind our desire to share Christ through word and deed. And when you are compelled because of the love of Jesus, what you'll find is you're not going to be afraid anymore. Fear cannot sit on the throne of your heart with the compulsion of Jesus' love. One of those two things reigns supreme in your life. We should be compassionately compelled to see others have Jesus' peace. And so listen to how Paul describes how experiencing Christ's love and peace in our lives, it's the catalyst for us showing it to others. It's the catalyst for a lot of things. In the, I taught a partnership class last Sunday, and in our group on Tuesday night, we were talking about generosity. Compulsion is the word that is used for generosity. The idea is like, we shouldn't just feel obligated. We should be like pushed in a, like by a wave we can't even fully understand to be generous in our lives. The same is true when it comes to sharing Christ's grace. 2 Corinthians 5.14. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And the point of this is that the, the recognition of Jesus' sacrificial everything on the cross, his time, his life, his effort, the fact that he lived an incredibly disadvantaged life for us to be advantaged in the kingdom of God, that should be the kind of thing that compels us to in very imperfect ways, there's no idealism in what I'm saying right now, in very imperfect ways, try to do the same thing. That's the standard we should be striving for. And so what Paul is saying is, is if you claim to have deeply experienced the peace of Jesus in your own life, the love of Jesus in your own life, the disciples in this room, but could care less about sharing it with others or are so overcome by fear when you think about sharing it, you have to ask yourself if you've truly experienced Jesus' love and peace. Because one thing you'll notice as you read the Bible is that it is when God gives us grace, when he gives us anything, it is always meant to be experienced and then passed on to others. We're conduits for God. We're not receptacle points. And the analogy I like to use here, I've used it before, is this idea of buckets and colanders. I think it's the best way to look at the Christian life. In Scripture, it's pretty clear that we are meant to be pouring our lives out for other people at all times. But there's a great you know, number of people who see their faith like a, a big five-gallon bucket that God gave them to collect a bunch of spiritual blessings and, and gifts and graces for themselves. And they're sort of like a, a Christian sponge who always desires and demands to be filled up but they never get the other side of the spectrum where Jesus demands that they also be wrung out for the sake of others. 
And this is the type of, of faith. It's sort of the hallmark example of modern Christian consumerism. We see God like a religious megastore, and we just want stuff out of him so that we can have better lives. But we, we forget how important it is to recognize that in the Christian faith, one of the greatest ways we grow is when we pour ourselves out for others. And this idea of sort of the bucket is one of the greatest challenges facing the modern North American church today. You can't live sacrificially for Jesus and your neighbor if you don't understand why that's important or do it at all. And that's why it's really right to say, based on what Jesus says here, I give you my peace. That's what he says to his disciples. Now share it with others. I now send you in the same way God the Father has sent me to you. It's totally right to say God disdains bucket-based Christianity. Because the bottom line of it is it's a pursuit of him that only thinks about self. Self matters because God deeply cares about you and me. But self doesn't, it's not the only thing that matters to God. Self and selfless is sort of how we need to function when we pursue God. We think about self, but we think about others. And sometimes, according to Philippians, we think about others as more important than self. And so on the contrary, God deeply loves a faith that looks more like a colander, not a bucket. If you cook, I, I should explain this to you because yesterday, my daughter, the one who broke the bowl, we were cooking supper last night, and I asked her five times to get me a colander, and she had no idea what I was talking about. And I thought, well, maybe you don't use a colander. Maybe you order out every night. A colander is a big, stainless bucket, like, with a bunch of holes in it. You know, you put your pasta in it, and the pasta stays in it, and everything drains out. That's what a colander is. It, you actually can fill that thing up. If you put too much water in it, it will fill up, but it will never be filling up while it's not draining. And that's, I think, the kind of idea we should think about with our faith. I'm not arguing that the mark of the Christian faith is not being filled up. A faith constantly being filled up by God's goodness and peace while simultaneously leaking that goodness and peace wherever you go, I think is the bullseye for us. And so what Jesus is saying here is, is, is if you belong to me, your mission is to carry on my mission in the world. Jesus died and rose again for that mission. He proclaimed his peace and imparted his Holy Spirit so that his disciples and us today, his, his modern disciples, so that we could experience his peace. And he desires our hearts be compelled to labor for that same mission, to spread his peace through our words and deeds. You don't have to be a theological scholar, a pastor, or a minister to share the good news, the grace, and the peace of Jesus. You just have to live like Jesus, act like Jesus, Encourage people like Jesus, comfort them like Jesus, and in that way, you are sharing the gospel. You really are. It's through word and deed, and oftentimes it's a healthy combination of both that actually wins a human heart to God. And so this week, as you count your blessings and give thanks and eat turkey and all the other stuff you're going to eat, I really want to ask you to meditate on these two teachings we've had. There'll be another one. We're not done with this subject, but for today, I want to sort of put a pin in this idea. I really want to ask you to meditate on these two teachings we've had on mission last week and today. Really think about the fact that if you are in Jesus, you are in large part, you've experienced Christ's promise of peace. Think about this. If you're in Jesus and you know his peace, it is because somebody has been faithful to what we're reading in John 20. The story of the disciples is they eventually leave that room. They're afraid, don't get me wrong, but they leave that room and they start to change the world. And some of them meet the fate they're worried about in this, in this room. Some of them don't make it. They literally lose their life for their faith, but they are not afraid anymore. They get to the place where the balance is restored. They recognize the risen Jesus is in front of them. And they make the decision to not let fear rule their lives. They let the benevolent King Christ rule their lives. Somebody was faithful to that teaching at some point in your life where you would not be in Christ. And it's very likely, because I know a great many of you, that many of you are faithful to this teaching too. And for that, we're thankful. They hear, we've heard Jesus say, as my Father has sent me to you to give you my peace, I now send you to others to share it in the same way. That's the whole premise of this teaching. 
We should be thankful for that. We should be thankful that that peace and that breath of the Spirit has been offered to us and is in us if we're in Christ. But I want to challenge you to not stop there. Do not put a period at the end of that sentence. Don't be a bucket here. Be a colander. Ask yourself if your life priorities include peacemaking like Jesus's did. In a world that seems to value division more and more, just turn the news on. Ask yourself, perhaps is it more important than ever if our light in Christ shines in a way where we leave a wake of mending in our paths? What if our news stories were that we actually left a wake of peace and reconciliation wherever we went? Or at least we did our best to. There is a great need for the ministry of reconciliation in our world today on every level, spiritual and physical and emotional. And there is a great need for people to be restored to God and each other through the grace of Jesus. And so I pray this week you would really dwell on that truth. You would really be thankful for this truth. You would trade your fear, whatever and wherever it is, for the promised peace of Jesus. And watch how God uses your life to do great things in the world for his kingdom. In short, when you get up and leave this room, live with the same power and authority that the disciples did. They heard the words of Christ and they followed him. And God did wonderful things through their lives because of it. That's what we should be most thankful for this week. That peace, that grace God has shown us has given us the ability to walk with and represent Jesus in our world. There is no greater honor under heaven. And we've been invited into that mission and been given that responsibility and privilege. So I pray in all that you give thanks for, make sure that is at the top of your list.